0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say. What radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, My Extinction, a new documentary by award-winning filmmaker Josh Opinionese about his conversion to climate activism and the battle against climate denialism. We'll be hearing from both Josh and Peter Pomerantsev. Peter is the author of This Is Not Propaganda, a book about disinformation and the denial of objective truth, who appears in the film and is an expert on climate denial. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. So find out how to subscribe over at BylineTimes.com. That's at BylineTimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Welcome then, Josh. Uh, Welcome, Peter. Josh, I'm going to start with you and the title of the film, My Extinction, as people will see very rapidly if they watch the film, relates not only to climate change, but also fear of your own extinction as a feature filmmaker. Just talk us through that.
1: Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, there's a lot encoded in the sort of joke of the title, I guess. It opens with me very resentful and angry, where a film that I was trying to make for years fell apart. And that really opened up a starting point for this I suppose, a journey into climate action, because I think in a society where we all feel failed, no matter how successful we are, we're all sort of congenitally programmed to feel bad about our position in late capitalism. And But actually embracing those feelings of redundancy and impotence, is that opens up a space, I think, for, for action. And that's the sort of journey I go on. But I start very resentful, hopefully in a comical way, and pissed off, driving my car and annoyed about Extinction rebellion blocking the roads and all of that. So I'm trying to describe an arc, really. What does somebody like that who makes car commercials and is kind of the white middle-aged guy who, at some level, is kind of the enemy? <laughs> you know, what does it look like? If that schmuck can get his act together, so can you, is message. So the extinction there is, I suppose, not gender it too much, but maybe a sort of white privileged male feeling about how the culture is trying to extinguish him. How do you convert that feeling of impotence into something that actually does something positive?
0: But I think you address that, don't you, head on? And the privilege that you acknowledge is something that you are seeking to use, to leverage in the film.
1: Yeah, there's this terrific line, I go to this... uh... Trainer, sort of dipping a toe in it and mostly just for the drink and hanging out with people who are younger and better looking than me. And I sort of go along to a few rebellions and things and not really taking it seriously as maybe I should. And then there's this training I go to, a sort of non-violent resistance training, and this very young trainer from XR, she enunciates it perfectly. She says, It's not enough to acknowledge your privilege that you have to act on it. And then I think, ooh, <laughs> how am I going to do that? You know?
0: And in reality, I mean, like many documentaries. It's not partly fictional, but I'm guessing there are bits of it that perhaps may have been reconstructed or or staged later. But truthfully, how much persuading did you need about the urgency of the climate crisis?
1: You you tell a story. You can only really tell one story in film. Trying to tell more than one usually doesn't work. And so, of course, the reality was more complex. And I had all the sort of conflicts about doing the kinds of things we do to survive long before I started making the film. I suppose I wouldn't have made it otherwise. But yes, the truth is a little more complex. There are some kind of reenactments. I I come from fiction rather than documentary. So I, I try to sort of structure films as character led and sort of telling, you know, write them like a screenwriter would do them. But it's all real. I mean, it's all stuff that happened. You know, if you have an argument with your wife and it was really, really good, but you didn't have a camera on her at the time, then it's a, the polite thing to do would be to ask, is it OK to just slightly reenact what you just said? And she, she, You know, she likes that because then she gets to really lay into me in a way she ought to have the first time around. So, yeah, these modes of intimacy, you know, that those home conversations that people are having at home and then don't know what to do because they're so depressing and so inassimilable and too big overwhelming then they just shrug their shoulders and they go on doing what they're doing so they've got to pick up the kids and whatever i wanted to show that so that's one register you just don't see in climate documentaries they're all very kind of tub thumping and preaching to the choir and and the other register is humor you know that it's funny and darkly funny
0: peter i described you as an expert in uh, climate denialism and there's Scenes in the film where protesters go to 55 Tufton Street, with which listeners to the Byline Times podcast and readers of the Byline Times will be very familiar. This is the home of a number of right wing think tanks in the UK. But the history of climate denialism isn't restricted to them and is not restricted to the UK by any stretch, is it?
2: No, and the UK probably doesn't even bear the worst of it. I mean, it's it's really focused in the US. Um, it has a very long history. It sort of starts actually in a campaign by the tobacco companies to undermine the facts about the consequences of smoking and its connection to cancer. And then you have a similar sort of group of think tanks who go and kind of do the same work for the oil companies. And they take the science and they start to see doubt about it by multiplying different versions of the roots of cancer and its connection to smoking and of climate change and they have a very strong you know ideological agenda which is less about science and much more about enabling big business often with a very ideological intent that any kind of regulation is evil that all regulation is actually a takeover by the state they're often true believers certainly in america they were true believers but the big companies realized pretty soon that they could use these guys to further their own desire to minimize regulation.
0: And there is this kind of intersection, isn't there, between those who deny the science of climate change and those who are simply advocates for what they regard as freedom, your freedom to drive a car as long as you like, as far as you like, and that any attempt to challenge that is in some way seen as a is an outrage, a, a breach of your fundamental human rights.
2: Yes, your fundamental rights, but also kind of your identity. A lot of this is sort of like lurched into identity politics, where sort of, you know, regulation is somehow un-American. And there was a a phrase for climate activists that some of these think tanks in America used calling the watermelon. So they're green on the outside and red on the inside. And that they were somehow alien to the American project. So it's not just about universal rights. It's also very much about an idea of sort of national identity and American identity that was being impinged on. It's much, 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 much stronger in America than it is here, where you genuinely have the Republican Party taking up the anti-climate banner. And that's kind of where it matters, because at the end of the day, that's where the sort of gravitational centre of the economy is.
0: In terms of 55 Tufton Street, Josh, what was the purpose of the protest there?
2: It's interesting. I mean, the American money,
1: uh, awash with money, that kind of money there hasn't stopped them funding Tufton Street groups. That's Open Democracy and desmog have now shown that actually Tufton Street groups like the Global Warming Policy Foundation and the IEA and stuff are indirectly in sophisticated ways funded essentially by the same kinds of people who fund Trump's election fraud claims and so on through the Donors Trust, which is a kind of ATM of dark money. I think it's fair to say that. But no, it's all out there. I think just going back to peter's point about identity here the right have taken the permissiveness that was sexy and exciting about let's say sort of 60s and 70s leftism and you know the left the left are left with being the nannies and it is not a good message for most people i want to take your car i want to take your steak away it's just taking stuff away like where's the fun you know nigel Farage gets to be the fun guy with a fag and a beer and who wouldn't want that it's become entrenched as a sort of problem i think for you know for critical left discourses you know where's the fund? how do you bring that back in that very small way this film is trying to bring that back by showing a guy me who (laughs) is an egotist and likes to have fun and doesn't like to be told what to do because i i think a lot of people would shine with that (laughs) otherwise it just gets a bit worthy and deep down worthiness is off-putting and the real reason i think for that is because ultimately none of us really think we are worthy we don't think we're worth anything so then when we're told that we should be we think fuck off you know.
0: Along the way, we see protests that you take part in. We see some of the, what can only be described as heavy-handed policing as well, that's visited upon some of the protesters from groups like Extinction Rebellion. So as well as the narrative around climate change, there is one about human rights and freedom, not the kind of freedom to drive your car for as long as you like, wherever you like, but the freedom's of expression of human rights and the ability to protest.
1: Yeah, certainly. I filmed it mostly in 2019 and 2020. COVID then happened sort of mid-film, so that becomes a thing too. But the policing then was nothing compared to what we're up against now and with the new bill and so on. So it remains to be seen, but it's not looking great for protests. So in a way, this is a sort of rosy picture, actually. The film is trying to reach a bit more of a middle ground. People do get arrested and there's all that if you like fun and frolics or despair, whatever you want to call it. But there is a kind of running joke throughout the film where other people I'm working with who are what I would call committed activists, like me, you know, keep saying, so Josh, you're up for a bit of an arrest on this action. And uh, I'm I'm, uh, just a bit busy this week and has this sort of kind of supervise the MA dissertations. So and of course, I never do get arrested, although plenty of people I'm working with do in the film. And so I wanted to kind of open that as essentially saying sure if that's your speed by all means we need frontline people to do those things but I'm not going to be one of them what else can I do and I kind of want to open a slightly more majoritarian I want to preach outside the converted a little bit and say like you know there's lots of useful things and good things you can do if you're definitely not up for getting arrested.
0: Uh, Peter you're speaking to us from Keeve and there is part of this debate as well which can usefully reflect, I think, on Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the West's over-reliance on Russian fossil fuels before the invasion?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is really where we can combine a couple of my obsessions and, and maybe things that really affect us in the world. I know we often think about sort of Putin and Russia as a problem far away that maybe we're going to help Ukraine deal with, but Putin's really the most extreme form of a sort of fossil-fueled model of dictatorship and aggression. His economy is 70 to 75% built on fossil fuels. Alexander Etkins, one of the best Russian professors, has written a new book called Russia Against Modernity, where he sees Putin's invasion of Ukraine essentially about continuing keeping Europe and other bits of the world addicted to Fossil fuel. So if Exxon and other companies use think tanks and that sort of thing, Putin just invades countries. The idea was to control the pipelines that go through Ukraine, which is still key to exporting energy. He was fed up of the Ukrainians sort of like having any kind of stake in that. And most ambitiously, to essentially push Europe into such a state of turmoil and confusion. And to be so intimidated, they give up on their goals to become carbon-free by 2050. So Etzkind, the most sort of famous professor of Russian national psychology and social psychology in many ways, really sees this as the essence of what Putin is doing, this sort of huge imperial war in order to not just maintain an outdated model of imperial dominance, but an outdated model of climate abuse. So when we think about the fight against Putin, I, I think it's deeply intertwined with efforts against climate change and weaning ourselves off fossil fuels. One of the people who seem to get this is Greta Thunberg. She, she's one of the best at actually making this connection. I don't think we've really got our heads around this. We, we look at Putin almost a little bit like we look at, at climate as something that brave people in Ukraine or those brave people at Extinction Rebellion, the risks are slightly different than the two take. But someone's over there, will fight for it, but we'll just get on with our lives. But actually, for both of these challenges, climate change and Putin, very much will depend on whether all of us can take a more activist position. And that is both intimidating, as Joshua's film shows, it's the agony of somebody learning to take on responsibility, which is a pretty agonising process, I've always found. And then realising, oh, actually, you do matter, which is an even more frightening thought, because if you realise you do matter, you've got to do
1: something. Yeah. And the, the energy security discourse, you know, we see reflected here at home in Tory policy, which was ostensibly green and a climate emergency and no more oil and gas projects. And then suddenly, oh, well, we need energy security, so actually let's build a coal mine, which is total nonsense because by the time they built it, you know, 20 years from now, it, it'll be irrelevant. And for sure, the oil lobbyists are behind that at the highest level of government. Um, yeah, I mean, you talk but, yeah. about the
0: Conservatives there, Josh. Of course, Labour has said, Like the Conservatives did, no more new oil and gas. That's if and when they get elected, but they won't reverse any permissions that are granted now while the current government's in power.
1: Correct. And I don't understand the thinking behind that. I assume there's some sort of polling or something that they've, or some. It may have something to do
0: with votes in Scotland where Labour is very keen to. Obviously, Indeed. roll back the tide of the SNP and where perhaps they fear that votes that might go to them will otherwise be lost if they're seen to block development of North Seal, for example. Or they may just be afraid of being seen as too radical on this issue. I suppose the question is, Peter, can you be too radical when it comes to climate change?
2: Can you be too radical when it comes to climate change? I think we have to sort of like think about these terms radical and extremism a little bit differently, especially extremism is one that that always gets me. I mean, look at the classic definition of extremism. It's not about being on the fringes. It's about politics, a kind of an ideology that takes away the humanity of others. So often extremism is actually in the center of societies. I think taking a position that saves the planet from disaster is, is not a radical position. That's a really, really sensible, grounded position while the radical position in the sense of pushing us off the edge is the opposite. So I'd be careful with these terms. They carry so much uh, prejudice. You know, you don't want to be radical. Something about climate change is not radical. It's sensible and, dare I say, prudent.
1: Yeah, and to sort of echo that in a small way, the aims of the film are to say, back to your responsibility point, <laughs> if you're responsible for <laughs> the global apocalypse, then that is a very daunting and sort of in a similarly traumatic piece of knowledge to actually take on and and sort of feel and then act upon. And so most people don't. So in the film, what I'm trying to do is sort of parcel out in a slightly comic way, that the responsibility there's no conversion or epiphany where you suddenly become Joan of Arc and have to dig a tunnel under an oil depot you know it's just giving up one night of Netflix a week and showing up to some local group where a bunch of people who are pretty much exactly like you are doing some local campaigns and stuff and you know if, if 10% of the population did that then we'd have massive social change and it's really not that hard to do and it can be quite fun so I'm trying to sort of detoxify the movement and so the idea of the film is if you come and see the film please bring a friend whose climate worried but never does anything you know maybe it's a dad or maybe it's a colleague or maybe it's a pal who you know never quite shows up for the thing even though they keep worrying about it and they're thinking about buying an electric car or some bullshit like that bring the persuadable friend then you've seen this film where a schmuck like me manages to incrementally become a tiny bit less selfish but is still himself You'll just be yourself, but more so. And so that's what change looked like. And we have to get away from this word extremists. People who do really radical things for sure are part of it, but actually the rump who are doing the daily work in communities are not like that at all. It's key that we get that message out. It's not an all or nothing thing, even though it's an extinction level problem.
0: Can buying an electric car, if you have a petrol car, be part of the solution?
1: And that's a longer and maybe slightly sidebar kind of thing. But if you have an old car that's still running, it's probably better for a while to keep it on the road. And then there's a tipping point where actually that no longer becomes true and it would probably be good to get maybe a secondhand electric vehicle and so on, but none of it's great. Maybe just drive less, you know.
0: One final thought, Josh. It's a very personal film and intrinsically it's a personal film, but that extends to your wife And when I know has appeared in – your films before you've made a film about approaching your first experience of fatherhood and as parents your two kids in the film as well any concerns about oversharing when you look back
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah every single time I make one of these bloody films I think why have I done this to myself again it's weird because I'm fairly private and my wife even more so and yet somehow I don't know, is this like a sort of screen uh, that looks like you know me and actually that I don't know what I'm doing with it, but it's sort of an act of desperation, but perhaps all good art is maybe, but you can't approach the general without the particular, you have to, otherwise you just say generalities and they're completely unconvincing. So this is what I've got to work with. So if I have next time a huge budget and some really, really famous actors, I'd happily go that route. But if you know a hedge fund manager out there who'd like to fund a climate movie, I'm all ears.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Josh, thank you. Thank you as well, Peter. And My Extinction is out on the 29th of June, 2023. There will be a special screening at the Prince Charles Theatre in London and a and a with Josh as well as Nafiz Ahmed, who's done a lot of work on 55 Tufton Street for Byline Times, along with Peter Dukes and Jessica Townsend from MP Watch. So check that out at the Prince Charles Cinema just off Leicester Square in London. And fear not, if you don't live in London, and some of us don't, there are other screenings in Birmingham, Manchester, Penrith, Canterbury, Oxford, Sheffield, Dorset. If you want details of more screenings and those screenings, head over to dartmouthfilms.com. That's dartmouthfilms.com. They are the producers of the film and they'll have full details of screenings and Q&As and so on. Josh, thank you. Peter in Kiev, thank you and good luck. This has been the Byline Times podcast produced by me adrian goldberg and by harvey white and funded by subscriptions to the byline times check out more details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com this is a we bring audio production for the byline times we'll see you again soon cheers now bye bye